Uh, well, this morning we are, um, it's Mother's Day, and uh, given that this is Missions Emphasis Month, I wanted to talk about Mother's Day within the context of Christian mission. I don't think we oftentimes think of uh, being a parent as a mission, or at least I don't. Maybe I can't say that about you, but I don't oftentimes think of it that way. But I think that when Christians come to the Bible, that's the way it's presented, that being a Christian mom or a Christian dad is really a calling. It's something that with God's help, it has a kingdom objective at the center of all of that we are doing there. It was pointed out to me recently, I was saying this in the midweek email, that most Mother's Day remarks that have gone out from Christian pulpits down through the years have been given somewhat ironically by dudes like me. To which I responded, that is definitely true, but this Sunday I am not going to be speaking about motherhood as a man, but rather as a son. I really don't know all that goes into being a mom, I can't pretend to. But I can speak intelligently about the impact that at least one mom had on me and about what the Bible says generally to parents. And so um, let me just start by saying that I'm not a mom. I don't know what that's all about, but uh, I have been impacted incredibly by my own mother and uh, can speak to that for sure. And speaking as a son, mothers are, in my experience, one of the great consolations of life. Uh, this is how I think of my own mom. She's just one of the great consolations of my life. And what I mean by that is that life is just undoubtedly, undoubtedly terrible sometimes. But my mom is now and always has been a powerful help to me in the midst of that. And as a boy, I look to her for safety Sympathy, guidance, nurture. And I'm a grown now, grown man now, and for the most part I've been weaned off of a dependence on her. And I have been trained instead, and in no small part by my mom, to look to God for those sorts of things. I think it's the goal of every Christian parent, or it should be, to transfer their children over time from dependence on them to dependence on God. And I have been trained by my mom to look to God for those things which she provided for me as a wee little Josh Tate. <laughs> However, even now, and I have to say this, even now, when I think of my mom, Janet Tate, in my mind, there is still that aura of refuge that hangs around her. Like, I still think of her emotionally in that way. She's a safe place, a place where I would turn to for sympathy and encouragement, a place where I trust her motivations even when she speaks harshly to me, as she sometimes does. <laughs> and I know as I say that, that this feeling is not universally held by people when they think of their moms. Uh, many people tragically lost their moms when they were very little. And they may struggle even now to even pull up a single memory of her. Or maybe their memories are not of a good sort. I know that may be the experience of some who are reading this. And so let me be clear that my objective this Sunday will not be to point us toward an idealized vision of motherhood. 
But let's talk about motherhood within the context of Christian mission. And we'll do that by giving close and careful attention to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Uh, the, the context for this passage in Deuteronomy 6 is this. The Israelites have left Egypt. They've been brought out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they are going to be going in to take possession of the promised land. And God tell, says through his servant Moses some things to Christian parents. The Israelites are right on the cusp of taking possession of the promised land, and it's a land filled with unknown dangers, where they're going to be taking their children, these families, into a place where they'll be surrounded by evil influences, and also, and it's very interesting that God emphasizes this, really more than the dangers and the privations that they would experience, He really uh, spends, if you go and read Deuteronomy 6, the verses after verse 9, where we're going to leave off this morning, for several verses, he's going to talk about the dangers that would come with plenty and ease. So this promised land that they're entering into is going to be full of dangers, corrupting influences, but also one of those corrupting influences that God highlights in particular is the dangers of plenty, prosperity ease. And really, I was thinking about that this week, and what kind of world are the little ones in our midst stepping out into? What kind of world are they going to inherit? Uh, You cannot look at current events in our country or around the world or moral trends or any of it and not feel a sense of, wow, this is really tough. This is a tough a tough thing our kids are going to be inheriting and stepping out into. But here are the words of our God to parents in that day, in that time, when they must have had a very similar feeling. God says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. One of the things I want us all to see here is this. We have an enemy whose attack is deliberate, intentional, and organized. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 4 through 9 calls parents, and this morning I want to speak especially to moms, to be equally intentional in their efforts to raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the truth. How can Christian mothers prepare their children for the battle that is raging all around them? to withstand the prolonged assault from the enemy on their hearts and to make a bold stand for the truth in this age of compromise and evil. Christian author and pastor John Eldridge has this to say. He says, this is the heart of our enemy. Here he's kind of loosely paraphrasing John 8. He is determined to hinder and harm and ruin God's image bearers, to steal and kill and destroy. So let me say this again. 
The story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. Do you have a sense this morning that there is somebody out there who wants to rob, steal, kill, and destroy your children? He exists. He's real. And he's a schemer. That's the way the Bible describes Satan. A schemer. He says that in Ephesians 6.11. And he's scheming how to steal your children. He's scheming how to kill your children. How to destroy them. Do them harm. Ruin them. And I don't think that's hyperbolic or over-the-top or dramatic. That is the heart of the enemy, according to Scripture. And he is scheming and organized in his effort to do that to our young people, to your little kids or your grown kids, as it may be. Twice that I am aware of, God in his word invokes the fiercely protective nature of a mom as the most dreadful thing a person can run afoul of. In Proverbs 17, 12, he says this, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. When God, God in his word is casting about for some way to impress upon you something truly terrible, he invokes a she-bear robbed of her cubs. In Hosea 13, 8, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs and I will tear open their chest. Moms. <laughs> Yipes. Now, here's the thing. I know a few moms, and I don't think I'm speaking again with even an ounce of hyperbole that I know any of you moms would die for your children. But something that has to be said is that you are not she-bears. You are not strong enough. You're not terrifyingly fierce enough to withstand the one who is seeking your child's life. Rather than a she-bear falling on some hapless victim of your rage, you need to imagine yourself as a sheep throwing yourself at a bear. This is the truth of it. Most moms I know would fight and die for their children, but when the Bible sets out to find a picture to describe who you are, an animal picture, God uses the sheep. And the thing that is needed most in a Christian mother, because we are not she-bears, you are not she-bears, you are a vulnerable you, a sheep, What's needed most in a Christian mother is not a willingness to die for her cubs, but rather a willingness to live for Christ. I'm convinced that many Christians, speaking generally, would die for their faith even while they struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to live for Christ. Gun to my head, I will not deny Christ, but I might struggle to live for Him today. And so, moms, nobody here doubts your ferocious love for your children. Nobody doubts that you would throw yourself at any enemy that threatened them. Nobody doubts that you'd stand up at a school board meeting 
Nobody doubts that you would physically confront an intruder. But what's needed, that you, what your kids need most, is not a willingness to be fearless and to die for them, but to live for Christ. For a sheep, its strength and safety lies in its proximity to the shepherd. Sheep don't have sharp teeth, they don't, they, you know, they don't have any natural defenses. <laughs> All their strength lies in their proximity to the shepherd. And where the ewe wanders, the lamb totters along behind it. And lamb and ewe alike will be devoured by the one who wanders around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you do not stay in close proximity to the shepherd. So the first charge to every mother that I give this morning is to resolve, make it your highest goal in your Christian mission as a mom to draw close to the shepherd personally. In Isaiah 40, our God in his word says this, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Uh, even as I say that, I, I, I always have to quickly come in with this truth which is that where were the very first wayward children? The very first wayward children we find in the Bible are in the Garden of Eden with God himself presiding. If it can happen in the perfection of the garden, it can happen in our homes. I don't, think, um, I don't want to heap on to moms this morning a burden that you can't stand up under. Your children are free moral agents, and the thing more terrifying than bears is their own freedom. And what will your children use their freedom for? What will they embrace? What will they love? What will they grow to believe? These things are what keep parents up at night. <laughs> you know, what are my kids going to grow to love? And they are free moral agents. I am not going to boil it down here to a formula where if you just do A, B, and C, everything's going to be fine. Ultimately, they have to choose for themselves. But what I think we find in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is perhaps not a formula, but a helpful strategy for Christian parents to pursue their mission. Moms, dads, pay attention to these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. These things you shall diligently instruct your children with. And I'm going to break it out into these two parts. The first thing that God says through his servant Moses to moms and dads is this. Love God. Love God. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Mother's Day, in my experience, is where we celebrate a mother's love for us. <laughs> I celebrate my mom's love for me. My mom loves me, her son. She really does. I know that. But do you know who I know she loves more than me? Well, for one, my dad. <laughs> she made that abundantly plain. Because long after we left the house, they were still going to be together. 
I love my mom for loving my dad, but my dad's a difficult guy sometimes, unlike me. (laughs) And do you know who my mom loves most of all? I don't have to wonder. She is a lover of God. And she loves my dad best when she loves God most. She loves her children best when she loves God most. And here, before getting into all this stuff about instructing children, God talks about how the most important thing for Christian parents on a mission to raise children in the middle of this toxic soup, the very first thing to work on is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today, those should be on your heart. And it's important, of course, that our children know that we love them. But it's actually more important, guys, believe me in this, that they see and know that you love God most of all. Moms, again, you will love your children best when you love God most. Get, here's what happens when we get this wrong. Deuteronomy 1.39. This, again, is Moses, uh, God speaking through Moses. Remember how the Israelites, when they came up out of Egypt, they came to the promised land the first time, and the spies brought back this report that they have very strong fortifications, and they're giant, their warriors are like giants. We can't possibly overcome them. Moses is speaking kind of retrospectively about that time. He says, moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, speaking of the promised land, to them I will give it and they shall possess it. One of the things we can see here is that when they raised an objection to going over into the promised land, to following God in obedience, to take possession of what he had promised and called them to, was they said, listen, if we go over there, our kids are going to die. We love our kids. You can't make us go over there where their warriors are as tall as giants and stuff. Moses says, who you say will be victims. (laughs) This is a very telling moment. They love their kids. But do you see, they love their, they've made an idol of their kids. They love their kids more than their God. Now, the command to love God has to come before the command to instruct children about God. Because, moms, what you love speaks loudest. And we cannot give our children what we do not have ourselves. In verse 5, when it says that we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might, it is talking about the whole person. The Hebrew word for heart, as we've talked about on other Sundays, means the inner being of a person. It's the inner reality of who you are. It's the place from which all of your desires, thoughts, words, actions flow from. It's where your motives rest. It's the core of who a person is, and it's foundational to who that person is. And God says, these commands I'm giving you, they shall be on your heart. They should be on that place, not just on your mind, and not just on your lips, but on your heart. If this is not an inner reality, then you're an empty pitch. 
And so really this is a call to be real, be genuine, to never give our children the impression that our faith is something that we put on and take off like an accessory. God is not arm candy. He won't be mocked. Uh, when I was in college, I was, uh, before I figured out who I am, I, <laughs> you know, I had an idea that I would go into business or something. I don't think that's a good idea for me. Uh, but I was a business major in school. I took a bunch of marketing classes. And I remember I was very fascinated when we learned a term that marketers use. It's called a pecuniary pseudo-truth. If you've ever driven by a restaurant and it says, best hamburgers this side of the Mississippi. That's stated as if it's true, but you can't sue them if it's not better than another one on this side of the... Because that's a legal term. That's Legally, marketers call that a pecuniary pseudo-truth. Something stated as if it's true, but a reasonable person wouldn't really believe it. Uh, when I was there, I, I'm part of Generation X, and they told me, and I don't know how many other generations there are now. It seems like every day I turn around, there's a Gen Z, or I don't know what's going on now. I don't know who, what this current generation is called. But at that time, when I was in college studying marketing, they said that Generation X, which was my generation at the I guess it still is my generation, at that time was the most marketed to generation ever, at, up to that time, probably even worse now. But they said one of the results of being marketed to so often by products, political campaigns, is that Gen X were really hard to appeal to through marketing. We were very jaded and cynical. Uh, do you remember back when Sprite was just have obey your thirst? That was a Gen X ad campaign that was much vaunted to address the cynicism of Gen X uh, people in response to marketing. Because, like, I don't care if a celebrity drinks Sprite. That's not impressive to me. They're just trying to get me to buy their stupid sugar water. Obey your thirst. Listen to your cravings. That's what it's just saying. You can't be cynical about the fact you want it. That was the whole campaign. But here's the thing, children, human beings generally are very intuitive, and our kids who are being raised in our very homes, they know what their mom and dad love. <laughs> they know what I treasure. They have a great sense of who I am in all of my frailty and imperfection. And so when God starts by saying, these commands that I give you today shall be on your heart, he is saying, don't be an empty pitch. Don't be a pecuniary pseudo-truth <laughs> that goes around saying things as if they're true, but not really intending people to believe them. Kids have a front row seat to their mom's lives. And one of the things that God is really zealous about, when it says as the very first item of the armor of God to put on the belt of truth, that's the belt of sincerity. Mean it. So be real, be genuine. We should never give our children the impression that our faith is an accessory that we take off in one, we put on in one context and take off in another. But one of the things that I have to say here is, what if this is where I am? <laughs> what, 
what if this is true of me to some extent? And it's probably true of all of us to some extent or another. I don't love the way that God describes here. Maybe not with all of who I am. And anyway, how do you obey a command to love? How do you do that? I think about black licorice, of the most polarizing food on the planet. Some people love it, some people hate it, nobody's like, eh. <laughs> if I command you to love black licorice, can you? No. You can't if you hate it. And if you love it, can I command you to hate black licorice? Still probably going to want it. <laughs> I'm pro-camp licorice, uh, black licorice. How do you obey a command to love? How do you obey a command to feel? God commands emotions all over the Bible. The first thing I would do is if you're a mom here this morning and you don't love God the way he commands, your whole being is not in love with the creator of the universe. In fact, you find his word boring. And sometimes you find his commands onerous and burdensome rather than delightful. What do you do about it? The first thing I would do is to be honest and confess it with God. God loves these kinds of conversations with his children. Psalm 51, David says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't play, take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you are ever in the course of your walk with Jesus, come to a place where your heart is out of step with what you know to be true, and you are struggling to bring your heart into agreement with what you know to be true, it is never a bad first step to just say to God, this is disordered and wrong. I have to confess this to you, God. I know what's true, and my heart isn't there, and I just want to say, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to confess that, and I need to ask you to change it in me. Uh, St. Augustine once said famously, we have to trust God even for the ability to trust. We have to ask God, God, command what you will, but give what you command. If you command an emotion that's not natural to me, please provide it. It's a good thing to ask God of. The second is this, to know God is to love Him. I, I believe that once you spend more and more time with God, a natural byproduct is that your affections grow. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think very often, what we put into our mind finds expression in our heart. We are designed in such a way that our feelings follow our thoughts. And it is difficult to have a right attitude toward God and sin if we are constantly filling our minds with error. Uh, the example I've used in the past in another sermon was if you were in a bunker in the Midwest, surrounded by armed guards and golden retriever puppies, and your grandmother was baking cookies in the next room, but you turned on Jaws in the TV, thousands of miles from the ocean, in the opening sequence, the person is swimming out into the water, 
They're silhouetted from beneath. You're watching the horror film, and all of a sudden, doo-doo, 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 doo. Your heart is gripped with fear. You're in Nebraska. Chocolate chip cookies, golden retriever puppies, armed guards, a bunker. Sharks can't get you. Why do you feel fear in your heart? Because of what you've put in your mind. Very often our culture says what you feel informs what you think. By design, guys, it is the exact opposite. What you put in your mind finds meaningful expression in your heart. Your heart follows your mind like a dog on a leash. If you are not putting God's word in your mind, how can you expect your heart to be in step with it? This is very often, I think, the problem with my own heart. When I fall away from the discipline of being spending time in God's word is I begin to find that my heart is wildly out of step with what I know to be true. So, get, so spend time with God and His Word. Confess it. Get into God's Word if your heart has strayed. Eliminate the competition. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. Jesus said, you can, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And James 4.4 4 says that loving the world equals hating God. There is competition for his place in our hearts. And so, moms, if you are in this place this morning where you realize that the first frontier of your mission as a mom is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and that these commands of God are on your heart, the very first thing you must do for your little ones is draw near to the shepherd. They're tottering along behind. (laughs) And it's so important that they see us in our sincerity. This brings us to the second half. I'm going to have to hurry here. But the second half talks about the home as a school. It says, you shall teach them, speaking about the commands of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's a lot in here. Boy, we could spend, I think, a couple Sundays just unpacking this part for sure. But the word in Hebrew for teach diligently in verse 7 is shenantaman, which means to sharpen like you would sharpen a knife. The idea behind this word is not a once-for-all instruction, but it's the idea of repetition, that you go over and over and over again the things of God until your kids are razor-sharp. It is the idea of repeated application in the sharpening process. And the idea that God wants us to have in mind is, again, not a one-time conversation, but a constant repetition of His truth. And we must do this with words. It says, "...shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." So what I, what I, just in summary, what I think is happening here is this. God is saying that this is something you do in private, this is something you do in public. 
weave the truth of God's Word into the everyday, the mundane, at the great events, at the small things, under all circumstances, at all times. The world never shuts up, guys, so Christian parents cannot afford to be silenced. Silence equals surrendering the field in many respects. There is a, a, uh, an alternating thing here where it says when you lie down and when you go out, um, hands in between your eyes. There's the idea of public and private alternating here. In other words, this is supposed to be true in the privacy of your home, in private moments, and it's also true when your family ventures out into the public square, as it were. So with words, with a mode of living that agrees with words. The word hypocrite comes from a Greek word, hypocrites, which means actor. 84% of young outsiders, this is according to Barna Research Group, report personally knowing a Christian. However, only 15% of these individuals report seeing a qualitative lifestyle difference between the Christian they know and themselves. 84% of young people in America today know a Christian. They just don't see any real difference between how the Christian lives and how unbelieving people do. I think they say, oh, they're good people. They volunteer at church. But I know people who volunteer places too. They don't really see a qualitative difference. And so when it says these words shall be binded on your hands, I think in part that's implying a, a, a uh, a lifestyle a way of living that agrees with the good words. And through a godly home. Again, the family is God's basic school for instructing children how to live for Christ in the world. And under God, both fathers and mothers share in the responsibility of this family instruction. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So the father and the mother are teachers. Therefore, the family is a school. And I think when I look at my own efforts to be a teacher in my home, I'm very aware that I've blown it in some significant ways at different times. There have been times where I've modeled really bad things to the people I love the most. And if that's you this morning, I want you to take heart and consider who Solomon's parents were. Solomon said these words in Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Who were Solomon's mom and dad? David and Bathsheba. That's interesting. If you're like me and you look back over your parenting career and you go, man, there were lots of times where I did not do that right. (laughs) What do, my parents, what do my kids learn from me? I want you to take heart from who Solomon's parents were. When you've blown it, fellow Christian, own it. So public the sin, so public the confession. If you sin in front of your kids and you go to them and you confess it, you own it, you say that was wrong, What you're doing in that moment is exalting Christ. You're exalting the perfect righteousness of Christ and not your own goodness. You point your children to Christ when you don't exalt your own goodness, but you point them to the only one who is perfectly good. My kids know 
that their dad is deeply flawed, but that I have put my trust in the one who's perfect. And that's what I need to point them towards. I think most moms, more than fathers, not always, but generally, I'm speaking here in a very general way, but I think moms, more than dads, carry with them concerns that they've failed their children in some ways. And moms, I invite you to claim for yourselves what Paul proclaimed in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point was never for you to be perfect, but in your imperfection to point to the one who is perfect, and that's where your trust is. That's who your children need. Your children do not need a flawless mother. They need a mother who owns her flaws and points to the one who is perfect and on whom all of her hopes rest. So we can be honest with children about our failings. Don't justify them or make excuses. One of the interesting things about this last verse I quoted, Proverbs 1.8, is the way it speaks of the impact of parental instruction, both while kids are in the home and after they have left it. It says both to hear instruction and not to forsake it. Uh, So children, uh, I want to close by telling you a story from my own life, and I don't have a lot of time here. But I want to tell you a story about a time how the teaching of a mother can follow her children long after leaving the home. Uh, Recently, Sarah and I had some people over to the house for dinner, and somehow, I don't know how, the conversation turned toward alcohol. I'm a teetotaler, which is to say I don't drink. Except for one occasion in my life, I can't remember drinking. And that was the time when my grandpa McEwen gave me what he called super apple juice. Uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think it was apple juice. Uh, This is not something I tend to talk about a whole lot because my convictions about alcohol really cannot be imposed on anyone else's conscience. Uh, I'll allow that as a boy, I naively assumed drinking was universally sinful. That was not anything my parents taught me. It was just something I came to assume because I was growing up in a dry house. But as I grew older and I was confronted by lots of sincere believers who also were known to imbibe occasionally, I ran to the scriptures thinking I would find arguments against them, but I found instead an abundance of evidence to the contrary. Now, don't get me wrong. Drunkenness is undoubtedly the stuff of sin. Scripture is clear on that. But declaring all drinking sinful would also be sin. That would be the sin of legalism. That would go beyond what God says in His Word and hold people to a standard that's not biblical that's born of my own feelings about things. Not everything we hold as a private conviction can be imposed on other people's conscience. Uh, The reason why I feel this way about alcohol is because my family's spiritual legacy goes back to my grandpa Tate. He became a Christian as an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic, a very dramatic conversion. Someday I should tell you that story. It's amazing. Uh, But he became a Christian, he gave his life to Jesus, but he went back to the man who led him to Christ and said, Jesus is my Lord, but I'm still a slave to something else. 
alcohol. I can't stop drinking. So that man and my grandfather got down on their knees and he prayed that my grandfather would be delivered. And my grandfather's testimony is that he was. Miraculously, he felt delivered from slavery to that. And when my dad was growing up, my grandfather said, God delivered our family from bondage to alcohol. You should never take it back there. And when I was growing up, my dad said, my grandfather told my, your grandfather told me that God delivered our family from bondage to alcohol. You should never take it back there. To my knowledge, neither me or any of my brothers drink to this day. Now, that's a story that's very personal to me and my family. I wouldn't seek to impose that on any of your consciences. Now, that would be legalism. Even so, even with that story, it was not until a sunny afternoon in the spring of 2001 that I personally embraced total teetotalism. Say that five times fast. (laughs) I had been working as a police officer for a few months, and as part of my new job, I was experiencing prolonged and daily interactions with people who were 1056, or drunks, as you civilians call them. Drunks, drunks, and more drunks. Some days it felt like I did not meet a sober person all day. One day I pointed out to a fellow officer that it was kind of ironic that I dealt with so many drunks, but had never experienced alcohol in my life, except for the super apple juice. And his, his was his advice to me. He said, you should drink a beer. Or better yet, a bunch of beers. His theory was that if I got a little 1056 to myself, I might gain some insight into the minds of the drunks I was dealing with. And at the time, it sounded like good advice. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So, So I waited until I had a couple days off. And after work, I stopped by the store. And on my way home, I loaded up on a bunch of Budweiser's. Now, all my friends who drink say that's Budweiser was a bad choice. I don't know. But I went home, I put it all in the refrigerator, and I thought, tomorrow is my day off. My only job is to get absolutely pickled. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and just get wasted. This is my plan. Now, I recall that that Budweiser sat in my refrigerator for weeks and weeks I just could not bring myself to drink it. Every time I contemplated drinking those beers, I became flooded with an emotion that I find difficult to describe. I think there's lots of things that we feel but don't have words for. And so let's just kind of give it a word. Let's call it flug. Every time I thought about drinking that beer, I felt flug in my heart. And I remember one day as I was sitting there in my apartment thinking about what would happen if I died, because I'm a fun guy, (laughs) I I thought about, you know, if I died in a car accident or something, my parents would have to come and clean out my place, and that's when it happened. Guys, that is the moment when I became a teetotaler, because do you know what came into my mind? An image of my mom opening the refrigerator and going, I never knew him. (laughs) 
I imagined my mom making the discovery. And with that, I got up, walked over to the fridge, pulled it out, poured it down the sink, threw them in the empties and the box behind the apartment building. And I never revisited it again. The flood was lifted, and I decided in a firm way never to revisit the issue personally. For me, not to drink is one of the ways I have decided to honor my mom. I've never talked to my mom or my dad as a grown man about drinking, but I suspect it would be troubling to them on some level if I took it up. Again, guys, if you're somebody who drinks, I don't believe that's a sin. But why would I do that to my mom? That would be kind of shabby of me. And besides, the very thought of drinking fills me with that mysterious flug. (laughs) An enduring flug is not worth it, whatever it is. Proverbs 23.25 says, Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. If you're a child today here, we've talked a lot about what your mom should do, but your job is real simple. Let her who bore you rejoice. Give your mom cause to thank God for your cheerful obedience to the instruction you received in in her household, for the way you forgive her her many foibles and faults, and celebrate with her the perfection of Jesus. As I look back over my life, it was my mom who taught me more skills than any other, more than my dad. It was my mom who made flashcards and patiently beat my times tables into me. She corrected me when I was wrong. She spanked me when I was really wrong. It was my mom who taught me how to tie my shoes, work the telephone, ride a bike. She's the one who mysteriously forced me to memorize Hiawatha by Longfellow. I know. She's the one who sat me, had me sit down and write thank you cards for all my Christmas gifts. And then when my grandma McEwen, and this is absolutely true, sent it back to me, marked up in red ink, she had me resend it. (laughs) My mom paid the bills and budgeted money for household expenses. She taught me to do the same. My mom taught me how to drive a car, how to balance my checkbook, how to do my taxes, She would also pray with us kids and lead us in reading the Bible together. My dad would do the same, but my mom was not shy about it either. She was and is a fierce defender of her children. She was and is incredibly intelligent, good with words, and in short, she is one of the most competent human beings I have ever known. However, the greatest thing she ever did for me as her son was to love God. Not perfectly, guys. No, no. But sincerely. She told me about him when we were at home and when we were out and about. We prayed before the meal, even if a friend from school was over and it was embarrassing. She wove God into the fabric of our family life and our conversations in moments big, and small, 
She loved my dad. She gave him a place of leadership in our home. And with a messy sincerity, she lived before us a life that agreed with her words. She never pointed herself as being perfect. But somehow over the course of all those years, she pointed me to the one who is perfect. And like a ewe who looks to the shepherd, she joined us, her little lambs, in expressing her need for him. Because like her children, my mom was feeble, frail, and made of dust. And she needed Jesus just like I did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for moms. Moms have a tough job. They love their little ones with so much fierce devotion, but they have to look to you to protect them. God, would that we were she-bears, but God, in your wisdom, you called us not to be strong and fierce, but to trust in the one, the Lion of Judah, the great shepherd God. Father, I pray for the moms here at State Road that as a matter of first responsibility and primary calling, that they would resolve to draw closer to the shepherd. God, when our moms, Lord, sin and fail to live up in a way that agrees with their ideals, their convictions, when they have failed to live for what they know to be true, God, I pray that you would give them the courage to own that and confess it before their children. Father, I pray that they would look to you to provide the miracle in their children's lives. I pray that they would pray diligently in and out of season, that they would talk about you with their children when they're at home, when they're out, that they would bind them, Lord, on their hands and between their eyes. Father, I pray that they would put them on the doorframe of their house and on the gates of their community. Father, I pray that you would help us to raise our little ones up to be sturdy followers of Jesus. And Father, for the children here, whether they be young or old, I pray, Lord, that they would hear their father's instruction and not forsake the teaching of their mother. Whether they're in the home or out of it, I pray, Lord, that they would give cause for the one who bore them to rejoice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.